You'll notice that the title uh, that I've given to this message is Easter, a short story. Actually, it's a long story when you're contemplating what we're talking about today. We have already considered that um, the beginning of this story, we've actually been considering it for the last for the last four weeks, or last three weeks, we've focused on the coming of Easter. But here's just one little note from the Apostle John at the end of his gospel. Now, John figured his gospel, laid out his gospel around what he called signs that would validate who Jesus Christ is. And at the very end of his, of his book, he writes, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written by one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So even John realized that what he was telling was just a minuscule part of what Christ had done and what he could testify to. So our text today compresses a very long story into a very short story. Philippians chapter 2 begins with, let this mind be in you, well rather in verse 5 is where we're picking up our text today, begins with, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 5. By the way, it won't be on the screen. If you want to look at a Bible, there should be one in the pew there. Go right ahead and follow along there. And here's where our text picks up. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, whether you are aware of it or not, Pastor Evan did an excellent job in selecting what we are singing this morning. You have already sung much of what is in these verses. You have already proclaimed it from your heart, and I appreciated uh, what he had selected for us this morning. But as we look at those, what will ultimately be to us uh, six verses, from verse 6 through verse 11 this morning, chronologically, we could consider this. Those verses move, in six mere verses, from the earth being created, or from before the earth was created, rather, until the new heaven and the new earth and beyond. In six verses. What did it take us to read it? A minute? That's how compressed it is. That's how short the story is in these particular verses. And it also, very simply, breaks into two parts. You can see them. We're going to discuss them. First, we, read, we see that the son humbled himself. That's in verses 6 to 8. And then we'll see that the Father exalted the Son. 9 to 11. That simple. The Son humbled himself. 
As we consider verses 6 to 8, I'd like to suggest that, uh, because this is how we've been looking at it, that, that those verses cover, we will see this, those verses cover from eternity past, before the earth was made, up until, or through Christmas and up until two days ago, Good Friday. That's verses 6 through 8. Verses 9 through 11 will carry on from there. So we read in verse 6, Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery carries with the idea a thing to be grasped after. So if it's not your own, you grab somebody else's, you're robbing them. But I think in this particular case, it also carries with it this idea that he was not going to be clinging to his deity. For he, he is... He was and is the very nature of God as the second person of the Trinity. But it wasn't something that he was going to need to cling to. John says this relative to being in the form of God. In the beginning was the Word. And I quote this often because if we're going to understand who who our Savior is and why he is worthy of being exalted, we need to have this down cold. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that, that reference of the Word is a reference to Jesus Christ himself, who's, as Philippians says, in the form of God. In John 8, 58, Jesus confirmed this personally. Occasionally people make the statement, and I don't understand it if you know the Scriptures, well, Jesus never said he was God. Really? John 8, 58, Jesus Jesus makes it clear his claim to be deity. When he says, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That statement, I am comes from the Old Testament reference, which I happened to notice last night. I, I put it on because, well, this would be a good background for preparation for tomorrow, is, was uh, the movie The Ten Commandments was on. And in the movie The Ten Commandments, there's that place where Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And God declares to him, which is biblical, that part of the movie is biblical, that when he says, who should I say, I say, sent me, he says, I am the eternal pre-existent one. The one we've been singing about this morning, that first song that helped us understand who he is. That Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, being deity in his very nature, didn't have to cling to it, hold on to it. Because verse 7 says, but he made himself of no reputation. He went from being worshipped by the angels because he is God to being of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The second person of the Trinity took on human flesh. Now, we celebrate this. We believe it. We celebrate it. And John continued in his discussion about the Word, the beginning of his gospel. Here's how John put it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As I think I mentioned last week, the Apostle John is, is very, it seems to very mean significant things to him to declare repeatedly 
that their eyewitness account of who Jesus is is what they're making known to us. We beheld his glory. We saw it. We testify to that. So that's how John put it. Luke put it this way. And you'll recognize this. Because I told you this went from eternity past. In the beginning was the word. And I said the next stop along the way was Christmas. When he made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant, came in the likeness of men. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? When the angel said, you are going to bear the son of God. You're going to have a child. The angel answered her and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's the account that Luke gives us as Mary learns of what's happening here. Of course, that put, at the time, was hard to understand for Joseph and put him in a difficult situation. And you know that Matthew says that he was thinking, well, his, what, this girl he's supposed to marry yet is now pregnant. He assumes what anybody would assume as to how pregnancy happens. So he's, he being a just man, Matthew says, he's minded to put her away privately and just kind of help this thing go away. And in verse 20 of Matthew 18, we read, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they should call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. So he made himself of no reputation, came as a bondservant, and he came in the likeness of men. And then the text says, and being found in appearance as a man, so now here he is, in all of humanity that he is, in its real humanity that he is, he humbled himself, now further actually, because he already humbled himself to become a man, now he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. Not some antiseptic, hey, we can have a way to figure out a way to put you to death that's uh, painless and not shameful. And No. Death on the cross was brutally painful and intended to be completely humiliating. And Luke tells us that... Um, When he had shared the last supper with them, which we celebrated the other night, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He knew what was before him. He understood what the Father had declared his purpose in taking on flesh would be. 
And as now he's coming to that place where within, within hours he will be hanging on that vile cross, bearing the sins of you and me, he is in agony anticipating what it is will be happening. So much agony that, that the uh, capillaries within, within his, his uh, circulatory system are breaking open. And with the sweat that he is dripping, there is blood that is coming out. But you see, he, he was obedient to this. It wasn't like he was looking at it going, boy, this is really going to be fun. He said, Father, if there's any way for this not to happen... But if it is necessary, and it is because we saw the last couple of weeks, it was before the earth was even made, it was determined he would come to this point. So it was necessary. And so what did he do? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he became obedient even to death, the horrific death of the cross. You know, Hebrews tells us that it was through this obedience that he became perfect. Now, he wasn't imperfect immorally, but the word perfect has, carries the idea of complete. And I think we can consider that he came into this complete identification with us in our humanity to suffer death and sin on our behalf. And uh, it, it was through this, this point of obedience to where he was willing to suffer death. And so then Luke finishes the account, even the death of the cross. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. You recognize this? This is Good Friday. Then the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in two, and when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He'd been obedient to death, even the death of the cross. That's verses 6, 7, and 8. From the Word who existed before the earth was made to being made flesh at Christmas to being obedient to death at Good Friday. And because the Son was completely obedient to the will of the Father, catch that. Because the Son was completely obedient to the will of the Father, And that was in order to fulfill this eternal plan of redemption that we have been looking at. The Father in turn exalted him. And that's the next few verses. The Father exalted the Son. Verses 9 to 11. And this element of this very short story, as Philippians puts it forth, takes us from Easter to his return, and on into eternity in the other direction. Therefore, verse 9, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's interesting when it says that Uh, God exalted him because it says he highly exalted. Actually, if you look at the word, very simply, he hyper-exalted him. My son Matt would say he uber-exalted him. But it was beyond an exaltation that anyone or anyone else or anything else had seen heretofore or will see ever. 
That's the type of exalting that he received. Now in this exalting of Jesus Christ, two things take place. One, this exalting yields a place for him, a position for him, a power that he assumes in this place. So this place is one of power and authority. You'll see that. That's first. The second thing that happens in this exalting is he receives a name. And names have significance. So he receives a name that is above every other name. He yields a title. So he has a place of authority and he has a title to go with it. Acts chapter 2 Peter is preaching the first sermon within the, uh, the new church, the birth of the new church. And uh, at, the reason he's begun to preach is because on this, on this day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and fills the believers. And there are a number of manifestations that are happening. So one, they have flames, uh, tongues like of flames of fire on their head to identify them, as well as as they speak... God's doing something with language whereby people who are from a lot of different areas and speak different dialects and different languages, but they've come for Pentecost, they're all there and they're hearing the proclamation of Jesus Christ in the tongue with which they are familiar. And they're asking questions. What is going on here? How can this be? These people don't know our language and yet we are able to understand what it is that they are proclaiming. And in this magnificent first sermon of the church that Peter preaches, he proclaims this, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He references back to David. David they respected. David they get. They know where David fits into their history. They know that David was promised that he would have a son that would sit upon his throne. That's the one they're waiting for. They don't realize they've just crucified him a few weeks before. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Therefore, being a prophet, that is David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on His throne, that's the throne of David, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That's what we're celebrating here today, friends. David, nine centuries earlier, was proclaiming what was going to take place with Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God. Remember Philippians said that he was hyper-exalted. I said there's a place involved with that. What is the place identified as? The place identified as to sit at the right hand of the Father. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear, that is these manifestations. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, so that the one to whom David would be in subjection, his Lord, sit at my right hand. 
this place of exaltation. Till I make your enemies your footstool. You see the authority behind that? You see the power that is within that position that everyone will be nothing more than a footstool to him. Therefore, Peter goes on, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And there are the names, the titles. The exaltation included a place, the right hand of the Father, and the titles, Lord and Christ. So that was on the first day of uh, of Pentecost and, and the first day of the church, okay? Now Paul writes... In another place, in the book of Ephesians, he, 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 has this, he has this prayer, and Ephesians is so packed with information. So we kind of got to jump into the middle of things because he's, it's everything is there. And he's praying, he says, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. So he's talking about this power that is resident in him, which he worked in Christ when, notice this, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see the position again? You see the place? The right hand of the Father. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, everyone, everything, Every living entity, all of creation is under now his dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Now, he doesn't identify a name for Christ there, but what he says is any other name that has significant, Christ is far above it. A place and a name and being hyper-exalted. So we've said that um, we took, when we were thinking about this element of these last few verses, we said, hey, it starts at Easter. God first raised him. Then he was exalted to a place with a name and uh, a place of authority. uh, And then a name. And we said, and it also goes right on into eternity. Let me see how that is reflected um, and you understand, we're only scratching the surface on this, people, all right? Uh, we get towards the end of our Bible, and we come to Revelation 19. Magnificent chapter. Revelation 19. And what I want you to notice is statements that are either statements of authority, place, power, right? Or referring to names, identifying through the power of a name. Now I saw heaven open, verse 11 of Revelation 19, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You see the power that he has to both judge righteously and then to bring war as necessary. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. There's that name motif again. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Huh. 
That takes us all the way back to where John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now here we are at the end times, and we're still seeing that title for Christ. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Power, authority. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. Huh. Names and a place of dominion. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And I just love this. And he has on his robe as on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. hyper-exalted, above all, every name that will ever be named, with all authority to rule in righteousness as is ordained for him to rule. You see, friends, how just a short story, six verses is all it is, six little verses there in the book of Philippians. That goes from before the earth was made until eternity will be ushered in. So let's just consider a couple of thoughts and then go have some Easter dinner, okay? Number one, Christ alone is worthy. Christ alone is worthy of hyper-exaltation. So we're told in Romans two different things about the resurrection. We're told in Romans 1.4 that it validates Jesus' claim that before Abraham was, I am. Romans 1.4, Paul writes that he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So when we think in terms of that, that we want to be Christ followers, at times somebody will question us or the evil one will put that thought in our mind. Why would you follow this guy? Is it really worth it? Is he worth a full commitment? Is he worth dedicating my life to? Is he worth my serving him day in, day out? When sometimes it doesn't look all that great. And this tells us I know who he is and there's no one else to follow than him because he is the son of God and then in Romans 4 23 uh, through 25 we learn that in, in the declaration about Abraham being justified by faith going all the way back some 18th century Abraham justified by faith and that's how we can be made right with God because none of us has righteousness in ourselves to be able to accomplish that. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him when it says Abraham believed God that was counted to him for righteousness, but also for us in the present day. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses. I mean, that was the foreordained plan of God that he'd be delivered over to the hands of sinful men to go on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. He was delivered up of our, because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. 
Now, if Jesus had never been raised from the dead, would we know if his sacrifice had been offered, had been received? Would we know he really was who he said he was? Would we have any connection? He'd just be one more misguided guy in history who the Romans put to death because the Jews wanted him to, and we'd never hear a thing after that. But we're still talking about him today because he was raised. And in that raising, God is making a statement that the death that he bore satisfies the righteous requirements of the law. And now God can declare us righteous, not because we're good, but because Christ and his righteousness is put to our account. And our sins have been put to his. Christ alone is worthy of hyper-exaltation. And I say this for this reason. Last week we got home from church and Lori's working four days of nights now so she'll go, we'll go home, she'll go back to bed and she'll sleep. She worked all night last night, all night Friday. She'll work all night tonight and all night Monday. Okay, so that's where we're at. So I said, hey, why don't we go out to eat last Friday, Sunday. Let's go out to eat and we will um, have a little bit of a time before the Easter holiday comes because we're not going to have an Easter holiday. So we went out. But before going out, I noticed that The Masters is on. I hadn't even had time to think about the Masters. Not only is the Masters on, but I see that Tiger Woods is actually having a presence. Now, I've been bored of Tiger Woods stories. For 11 years, all I did is follow Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. It's like, dude, leave the guy alone. If he comes back, let's celebrate it. Until then, the guy's got nothing. A couple years ago, he wasn't sure he could even golf again because of his back. But he was on the leaderboard. And so I said to Laura, I said, well, let's just wait a little bit, okay? It's only three holes left. (laughs) Let's see what happens here. All right, let's see what goes on. This is fascinating. As it turns out, he's going to win that tournament. And as he comes down that 18th fairway, and this is what you need to understand how it works when you get, particularly in the majors, they get to the end of the tournament, and when there's a guy coming down who is clearly going to win, the crowd goes crazy cheering him, exalting him, honoring him. And when it's Tiger, who hasn't won a major in 11 years, who's had a lot of stuff go crazy in his life, the crowd was just appeared. I can't speak for everybody, but they were thrilled to be seeing this moment, if nothing else. We are experiencing history right here because nobody thought, or very few thought, this guy would ever win another major. So it's huge what is happening. And they are cheering, and they are cheering, and they are cheering. And if I was there, I'd be cheering too. Yes, I would. Something, he is pulling off something significant. We cheer our rock stars, and we talk about how incredible they are. We cheer our movie stars, and if we ever met one, we're going to tell everybody that we met them, and I'm fine with that, because they can all do stuff I can't do. I can't even get invited to sing with people up front of church. I get it. And so we appreciate what they can do, and we celebrate what they can do, but friends... Never forget, they're sinners needing Jesus Christ every bit as much as you and me. And yes, they can do some amazing things. But Tiger Woods being exalted as he walked down that final 18th, I don't know where he's at with the Lord, but if he has not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he still needs it. If he has not bowed the knee to Christ yet, he will one day. So that's why I'm just asking us to think about this as believing people, as people of faith, okay? 
as we celebrate our stars and our heroes, and I'm fine with that, let's just be careful that we always leave a gear that says, I'm willing to celebrate them this much, but there's a gear way up here for Jesus Christ that he alone gets of my honor, my glory, my exaltation, my joy, my adoration. And I am able to keep some perspective here because Jesus Christ alone is worthy of hyper-exaltation. That's one thought. Secondly, because he is worthy, and he is, each of us will bow before him and proclaim him Lord and Christ one day. Everyone will. That's what the text says. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have one of two ways we can do that. We can do it now, willingly, acknowledge him as our Savior, or we will be required then, unwillingly, for him to cause us to bend the knee in his presence as our victor. I want to tell you, friends, way better to meet Jesus as your Savior than your victor. And so each one of us is left with a decision. See, we're all born as part of the dark kingdom, and each one of us is left with a decision whether or not we're going to leave that kingdom and say, you know what, I, I need the hope that's found in Jesus Christ and him alone. Or we're going to say, no thanks, don't really need it. I'm pretty good the way I am. I'm fine today, Jesus. Thank you. Well, can I encourage you? This is Easter Sunday, man. If you've not met Christ in a personal way, if you have not yet bent the knee and said, Lord Jesus, I understand what you did for me on the cross. I understand the resurrection proves that what you did for me on the cross um, validates that, uh, yeah, you accomplished something that I can't do for myself. And Lord Jesus, um, I acknowledge you as Lord. I acknowledge you as Savior. I acknowledge you as the Christ. I acknowledge the name that is above every name. And I trust you to be my Savior. Friends, what a magnificent day (laughs) that every one of us would be able to finish this day knowing that we are safe because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So because he's worthy, each of us will bow before him one day. Savior or victor, I pray that for each of us it will be Savior. Two other things, quickly. Christ alone can keep us moving in the right direction. Remember, we referred to him as a cornerstone. The scripture did refer to him as a cornerstone. Keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ. He will guide us into truth. He will guide us into light. He will guide us into things that are good and whole for our lives. Oh, how many, how many lives can you just think about? How many lives around us, around you, and whatever your circle of influence is, that you can see are just crashing and burning? Maybe you're crashing and burning. But hey, Jesus Christ is never going to lead us to crash and burn. He's going to lead us into wholeness. He said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And uh, he's not going to afflict us in evil ways. Okay, which the evil one will do. All right. And lastly, Christ alone will set things right. Don't you just long for a world where things are right one day? Don't you weary of the hate? Don't you weary of the racism? Don't you weary of the poor being oppressed? Don't you weary of godless men who seem to succeed? 
Don't you weary of all these things? Don't you weary of the, of the fighting within our families? Of the anger among neighbors? Don't you weary of the disease that, that we all fight at some time or another? Don't you sometimes just wish, if it could just be good, it will be good, friends, because of Jesus Christ. And for those who place their faith in him. And you know, the scripture says, and I don't want to stop, so I'm not going to read it there, but the scripture says that, you know, we re- what we really wrestle against is, is a demonic realm. That's where the problem is. We, wrestle, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Spiritual wickedness in high places. There's a, there's a, there's a storyline being played out that influences our walk on earth and what's happening with history on earth, but the storyline is between a dark kingdom and a light kingdom. But the day's going to come when the dark kingdom is vanquished because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you just long for a time when it just be good peaceful and loving and caring and kindness. The only place you're ever going to find is get on board with Christ. Because when he comes in victory, he is going to set that up. Father, thank you for the magnificent hope that is ours in your Son. Lord, it is only in your Son. We acknowledge that. We recognize that he has been hyper-exalted because there's no one like him. You sent no one else as a deliverer. There is no other hope in anyone else, Father. It is in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. He humbled himself to take on flesh, and then he humbled himself further, even to the death of the cross, for the likes of us, Lord, who want to basically take him pretty lighthearted, and we confess that. And today, as we have focused upon him, Lord, we ask that the power of the resurrection will move in our hearts conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, making us alive and anew again to that magnificent work of regeneration that you want to do in each of us. May Christ alone be hyper-exalted, Lord, we ask in his precious name. Amen. alone, my hope is found, he is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless babe this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died the wrath of God